0: we're sitting in the committee room here at woodford folk festival um, this is sean for uh, environmental as anything i'm sitting with ian lowe uh, we're talking about the uh, the urgency of the the climate emergency thanks for for making time to talk to me again
1: real pleasure sean
0: so before i go on i, I like to ask everybody um what which which uh, version of the future
1: would you subscribe to mad max or star Trek? Well, Mad Max looks more likely. Uh, I remember in 2000 I was asked to give a conference paper on the topic, Can Civilization Survive the 21st Century? And I said if you're a gambler you wouldn't back us with stolen money because we show no sign of recognizing the scale of the problem, let alone having the social institutions or the political will to deal with it and um, we've known for 30 years that climate change is a serious problem for example and um, we still seem incapable of dealing with it, Uh, we still have a government who's basically in denial Um, when the Academy of Science said six years ago that global emissions need to peak by 2020 and then go steeply downwards, well it's 2020 as you people are listening to this and uh, there's no sign of them peaking or going steeply downwards and there are still people who think that short-term economics is uh, significant enough to justify opening new coal mines or approving fracking for gas in the Northern Territory as if climate change was not a problem. Uh, I also remind people that even if climate change was not happening we would still have serious environmental problems. For example, loss of biodiversity is arguably a more important problem than climate change because with concerted action we could restore a pre-industrial climate in a hundred years or so, but uh, you cannot re- return an extinct species, no. so biodiversity loss is permanent. And we are losing species now at rates comparable with the five past great extinction episodes in the history of the planet. And um, in 2017 there was a second warning published by the world scientists. In 1992 there was a world scientist warning to humanity. In 2017 they published a 25 year update and they said the good news is that we've dramatically reduced the rate of releasing ozone depleting substances. That is the only example of concerted action that has improved an environmental problem. All of the other environmental problems are getting significantly worse. Uh, The fish catch is down by 20 percent, Fresh water per person is three-quarters of what it was 25 years ago. The number of ocean dead zones has doubled. We've lost 100 million hectares of forest. Uh, (laughs) Climate change is accelerating. Uh, If you look at um, species abundance, in 1992 we were down to 60% of the 1970 level. We're now down to 40% of the 1970 level. Uh, Wherever you look, uh, large scale or small scale, Uh, species or ecological systems, uh, we are losing natural systems at an alarming rate. And the underlying problem is that both the number of us is still increasing, the human population is still growing by about 80 million a year, but equally importantly, uh, whether you look at the richest countries in the world or the poorest, in every country consumption per person is increasing, And uh, that is an active goal of governments at all levels. So uh, every year there are more of us consuming more per person, putting compounding pressure on natural systems. And uh, it's all driven by the goal of accelerating economic growth. And we really don't have much of a future as a civilization or probably even as a species until we recognize that our social and economic planning Needs to be within the constraints of the limits of natural systems. Yes, so, and that, I mean, that's obviously one of the, the great challenges, isn't it? I
0: mean, because it's kind of easy to sort of identify that problem, but then it's, what, what steps do we need to take to get to the solution for that? What, what do you think is, is, is the, the practical you know, program for, for, for re- reforming our economy into a post
1: growth based economy? Well, you, you can think of two studies that, that point the way forward. Um, The limits to growth, the first report of the Club of Rome was published in 1972 and it said that if the trends of growth in population, resource use, industrial output, agricultural production, pollution were all to continue we would reach limits within a hundred years and the most likely result would be social, economic and environmental collapse in the middle decades of this century between the 2030s and 2050s and A recent study by Dr. Graeme Turner of CSIRO comparing that standard run with 40 years of data shows that we're right on track. If we were seeking to achieve collapse in the next couple of decades, we're we're right on target. Um, But the limits to growth also said that it's entirely possible to redirect the trajectory of human development onto a path that would be sustainable into the distant future and would allow every human to develop their full potential, however carelessly they chose their parents or where they live. But it would require conscious political decisions and actions, rather than trusting the magic of the market. Now, a concrete approach uh, was modelled by Peter Victor, who is a professor at the University of York, Toronto. And he used modeling tools similar to those used by the Canadian treasury to look at alternative futures for Canada. And I was very interested in this because Canada is like Australia, a rich third world country, an affluent country that exports raw produce and imports the things that we're not clever enough to make, like t-shirts and sand shoes. So it has a very similar uh, history and a very similar economic structure. What he found was that if uh, a business as usual future led to collapse sometime in the 2030s because uh, the rate of depletion of natural resources and degradation of natural systems became unsustainable. Stopping economic growth immediately led to social upheaval because uh, huge unemployment uh, worsening uh, material uh, standard of living uh, and that was also unsustainable. The only future he saw which was sustainable was one in which uh, first the population was stabilised uh, and in in Canada like Australia um, women are now having fewer children so that the birth rate number of children per adult woman is below the replacement rate and the population is only increasing because the number of adult women is still increasing and there is inward migration so uh, if you Slowed down inward migration, the population would stabilize sometime in the next 20 or 30 years. And he said, if you stabilize the population, that removes the need for growing the economy, because if the economy stops growing and the population does, then wealth per person uh, is shrinking and that's politically unsustainable, but if the population is stable, then uh, you can stabilize the economy because wealth per person is constant. So he said the only future that's potentially sustainable is one in which you first stabilise the population by concerted policies encouraging women to have fewer children by limiting migration and then secondly you move towards a zero growth economy Uh, and that is potentially sustainable into the distant future Mm. but it requires conscious action and at the moment I think the most fundamental problem is that most decision makers think the economy is the be all and end all as long as the gross domestic product is sufficiently gross, we can fix any social or economic or environmental problems. Um, and secondly, even those who accept that growth cannot go on forever uh, adopt the approach that one of my friends calls not in this term of office. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, even if growth is going to stop, uh, we don't want it to happen before the next election. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I don't, I'm no expert,
0: but I've often sort of, said that, that I think that this is an accounting problem more than uh, more than anything else. This is a, a failure of the system of accounting that we're, we're going through here because there's so many externalities which aren't simply factored into the accounting. If we simply reform rather than saying we're going to reform the economy which sounds very intimidating to me and to most people can we, if we were to reform accountancy is that where we need to
1: start or something like that? Oh that, that's certainly a starting point. Um, for example if you uh, to Think of a really radical example, if you had a price on carbon, Mm. uh, that would uh, make carbon-based fuels less economically attractive and clean ones more economically attractive. If you phased out the huge public subsidies of fossil fuels, that would make fossil fuels less economically attractive. In fact, uh, even with the current subsidies... uh, Which are, what, around $30 billion a year in Australia? If if we're economically rational, no one will ever build another coal mine or coal-fired power station or gas-fired power station because they can't compete economically with large-scale solar large-scale wind with storage and uh, if government got out of the way and simply allowed the market to operate even without a price on carbon um, there would be a rapid transition away from uh, the old fossil fuels and towards the new clean sources of energy so you're, you're right at one level it's accounting at another level, the problem is one of political will. Yeah. I'll give you a specific example. The UN Development Programme did a study about 15 years ago of what it would cost to achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals globally so that every human, wherever they lived, had decent shelter, basic nutrition, clean drinking water, education, including reproductive advice for women, basic health care, and so on. Huge program, you know, because there are currently uh, hundreds of millions without clean drinking water, hundreds of millions without adequate shelter, hundreds of millions who don't get enough to eat, would cost trillions and trillions of dollars. They then calculated that that sum, a 10 year program to eliminate poverty completely, would cost about 5% of the global military budget. (laughs) In other words, you don't need to assume anything as utopian as peace breaking out universally. You only need to shave a small amount of the obscene sums we spend preparing to fight over limited resources to create a world in which you didn't have to fight because everybody had enough mm. and what that demonstrates is that the fundamental problem is not one of limited resources it's one of lack of political will mm. uh, those of us who still live very well in material comfort in countries like Australia historically have been unwilling to share our prosperity with people who are doing it very tough. And uh, Mm. to our shame, successive governments have steadily cut our aid budget. And what aid budget we have is often disguised subsidies to Australian companies to operate in poor countries Mm. rather than genuine aid to ensure that every person in Bangladesh or Namibia has uh, decent nutrition and clean drinking water.
0: Yeah, I mean, it does seem basically fairly obvious. And I mean, in like, um, you know, it, it, Steve Pinker and others have talked about, you know, the outbreak of peace that we've seen around the world. It's rather strangely ironic that we continue to spend trillions of dollars on warfare when we're not actually even at war on a mass scale, there isn't even the, the kind of conflict in the world that would justify any of that kind of expenditure, is there?
1: That's exactly right. An extreme example is the United States. I mean, Half of the global military budget is what the US spends on, quote, defence, end of quote. And in a rational world, the end of the Cold War, uh, the end of there being an enemy that the United States needed to confront, should have seen a huge reduction in the military budget. But the US political system is so dysfunctional Mm. that every time there was a proposal to reduce a missile program or a program to build nuclear submarines or a program to build bombers the local congressional representatives went to bat to make sure that no jobs were lost in upstate Michigan or downstate Alabama or wherever and the US is spending more and more each year on the military uh, when there is no military conflict and uh, somebody suggested that the US has to find reasons to go and send troops to Iraq or Afghanistan uh, just to give the military something to do rather than having them sitting around thinking about staging a military coup. Causing problems at home. <laughs> Causing problems at home. <laughs> That's the worst problem of having a, an idle military historically isn't it? it is, yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, okay, that's that's obviously a big long conversation we could go into there, but I, I, we've just had the Madrid uh, COP meeting, you know, and uh, it, it's been obviously it's been touted as a, a significant failure. There has been no significant uh, sort of achievement come out of that. How how would you uh, rate it? What what would your your summary of what's just happened? Oh, be? If you're
1: giving them a score out of ten, you'd give them about one. Mm. Uh, I mean, I've been going to COPs since the second one in Geneva, I was at the third one in Kyoto, I was at the, uh, the Copenhagen one for which we had so much hope, Copenhagen it was called, and uh, it all fell apart because uh, basically China and the US couldn't agree to reduce their emissions and uh, it's still the case, I mean China and the US account for more than 40% of global emissions so unless they agree to uh, Reduce their assault on the planet, uh, there's not much that the rest of us can do. And I mean, everybody in the climate science area accepts that the Paris Agreement did not go far enough to stop the planet heating by more than two degrees. And what the figures at Madrid showed is that almost nobody. Is doing enough to meet their Paris commitments, right. which in turn are not enough to achieve the stated goal of keeping the increase in global average temperature below two degrees. So I mean, it's a classic tragedy of the commons that uh, uh, every country sees it as not being in their political interest to do their fair share because they bear all of the burden of reducing emissions and they only get a fraction of the benefits. And um, if I remember. Professor Lester Milbrath wrote that if civilization survived, we would probably see that climate change had been the great teacher, because climate change is the ultimate demonstration that we're all in this together. Yeah. That uh, there has to be global cooperation, and if there isn't global cooperation, then civilization will collapse. And uh, at the moment, uh, you know, if you're a betting person, you'd say civilization is likely to collapse perhaps not in my lifetime, but certainly in that of my children or my grandchildren. Mm, yeah. And um, uh, I'd like to think we're working towards a better future for them than that. That's right. That's why I sort of always posit that Star Trek option, you know, so how,
0: how like how do we get there? What's the, the thing with this, you know, if we're going for the Star Trek future, I mean, obviously a lot of people are doing a lot in their personal lives. I'm involved in the solar industry, a lot of people putting solar panels on their roof, a lot of people talking about getting electric cars, there's a whole heap of of actions that people are willing and comfortable to take within the consumerist model. But is that enough? What do people actually have to do for us to get it across the line, do you think?
1: Well, uh, individuals are doing their part. More than two million Australians have solar panels on the roof. More than a million Australians use solar hot water. more and more are making conscious choices to eat lower on the food chain, to uh, reuse and recycle rather than being part of the throwaway society. Uh, but government sets the framework within which people make their decisions. Uh, you can only choose to use public transport rather than a car if urban planning and the provision of public transport makes that a viable option. And um, most of the growth in our cities in the last 20 years has been on the peri urban fringe, uh, creating suburbs with no public transport and uh, no alternative but to use a car to drive very long distances to get the basic services that people living in inner city areas take for granted as being within walking distance. So we're not making it easy for people. And uh, I mean, it's been said that when the leaders lead, uh, when the people lead, the leaders eventually follow. Um, the leaders are lagging a long way behind. I mean, uh, all of the opinion polls show that at least 80% of Australians think we should be doing more to slow down climate change. Mm. There's majority support for powering Australia totally with renewables by 2030. Even the state Liberal government in New South Wales mm. has a, an electricity roadmap that shows them getting 89% of their electricity from renewables with storage by 2040. And only residual 11% from gas turbines. Hmm. So, I mean, you don't have to be an idiot to be a member of the Liberal Party. That <laughs> clearly, helps. clearly helps. <laughs> but the, the the point is, we know what to do. The technology exists. One specific example. 17 years ago, the Howard government received a report called the National Framework for Energy Efficiency Parliamentary Committee. Uh, it concluded that we could reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 30% using cost-effective available technology that paid for itself in less than four years. <laughs> and What year uh, was that, sorry? 2003. Right. And we've had seven prime ministers since then, and we've done more or less nothing mm. to implement cost-effective improvements in technology that put money in people's wallet as well Mm. as reducing the impact on the environment i mean there are refrigerators on sale in australia that could not legally be sold even in the united states of america yeah and the average australian refrigerator uses about twice as much electricity as an equivalent size one that you could buy in western europe Mm. and that means you're spending twice as much to keep the beer cold and and the butter solid um as you would if you lived in western europe and that's hitting people in the hip pocket as Mm -hmm. well as damaging the environment. So uh, I think people are willing to make an effort, but government needs to set the rules. So uh, our appliance efficiency standards are among the worst in the developed world. We have no vehicle efficiency standards. The fuel efficiency of the Australian vehicle fleet is no better today than it was 50 years ago. Because all of the improvements in engine technology, in tyres, in brakes, in transmission have been swallowed up by our cars getting bigger and heavier and more and more people are buying large four-wheel drive vehicles to Mm. cope with the difficult terrain of suburban streets Mm. and we actually still provide a tax incentive. You pay less tax on a new vehicle if it's a four-wheel drive vehicle because historically they were used mainly on farms and mine sites. But we are basically bribing people to use larger and heavier vehicles than they need. Uh, it's, it's mad so um, systemic change systemic change is what we're after.
0: individuals can do what they can do in their lives but people need to, to, to demand and, and, and work towards those, those systemic changes from a political level at a government level. Are you looking for the courage to face the hard facts about our environmental crises? Do you want honest reporting on the global solutions that are at our fingertips? Would you like to know what simple, effective local actions you can take to make a positive difference to the state of the world today? Tune in to Environmental As Anything on 92.9 River FM every Saturday from 2 to 5 for all the news, interviews and analysis you need to make the future you want. For the future,
1: we're hand in hand (laughs)